Damn, Reva, that sounds great. Wow. What Fade band that is that? Down. We, I, is, is, that, is, that some new, is that some new fresh young band that's like hot and hype that we can hype them up? <laughs> it, it's some silky smooth new vocalist that does R, R&B mixed with old school emo or something Ooh, like that. Look, I bet they look cool and young yeah. and fresh <laughs> and hip. <laughs> That's good. That's good stuff. That's Devin singing. That's from the new Emory album, oh, which yeah. is uh, available now if you are a member of Emory Land, and it'll be available to the general public on June 5th. It'll be on Spotify then, but we've been enjoying it yeah. a bunch over in Emory Land. Those people already have it. That's a I track know. from it. So, the, hey, uh, we, we, know, we know you folks are getting them checks. You might as well join Emory Land with it. What are you going to do? Go buy, there ain't no toilet <laughs> paper or, or Clorox wipes. I'd rather yeah. join. Emory might clean your ears out a little bit. Yeah, pay your rent first, which... You Maybe know. pay your rent. <laughs> pay pay last month's rent, catch up, pay this yeah. month's rent. And I'm sure y'all's rent's what, $100, $150 a piece? So oh, you'll have a, if that. <laughs> that's what my rent was when in uh, college. We had a yeah. house with six people in it, and the rent was $600. So we had paid $100 a piece. Yeah. And, of course, we put all six of our beds in one room with right. bunk beds and then had a makeout room and a study room or <laughs> recording studio room with the other bedrooms in the house and paid 100 a month. And so. then we graduated college and moved six people out to Seattle and all lived right. in a, and did it again, an apartment. Did it again and again and again. <laughs> That's why I don't understand exactly. I mean, I do understand and I feel real bad but about this, all the student loan people, you know. Like Oh, I, I'm sorry, like you. <laughs> oh, yeah, like me. Yeah. Like me. You I was mean, able to avoid me. student loans, but I was paying a hundred dollars a month in rent. So that's that's part of how you're I able mean, financially, to financially loans. Financially, it's the most fun. You you didn't you weren't making a ton of money, but you you, you made plenty for your lifestyle and th- there's zero regrets you must have. Like I wish right. I didn't have student loans to pay off. I, that is true, and I got screwed a little bit here and there because of a couple of things. But you know, I, 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 that's then the breaks. But that period of your life has to be overall the greatest time of your life. You could totally afford your life. You didn't have mm-hmm. much responsibility. Matt mm-hmm. was so rich, Reeve. I don't know. We probably talked about this before. Matt, this is this is when I think I finally was like because when I first met Matt, I hated I him. Was I thought rich. he was st- stupid goofball. <laughs> uh, and it, Devin had told me his dad was wealthy and all this stuff, and I was like, ah, oh, this guy's whatever. And I just didn't know. And then he's talking about music and recording on his thing, and I was like, oh lord. <laughs> and uh, he wore a big bag of clothes. He just looked terrible, acne and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it's true. It's all true. And uh, he started, but I could sing, and I was like, ooh, well, this guy could record me. And then we kind of started getting closer and closer, but. There's a real time where we'd been friends for a little bit, but there's a real time where I had no money. And I was, uh, I, I was only taking like one or two classes in college. I could barely afford it. I was having to pay for that and everything. So I lived on an $11 budget for food. This, I am not lying. A week. A week. Uh, I would spend $11. <laughs> I'd go to Aldi grocery store and I, they would have, back then, they might still do. Aldi's pretty cheap with food. I'd get a big giant bag of chips. Uh, I'd get some ham, you know, just the bear. It would come to no joke, like ten dollars and seventy nine cents every week. I knew exactly what to get to get that eleven dollars. And uh, I, my sandwiches, I would put one slice of thin ham on it. <laughs> you know, not like two or three. So much so, I did that for so long that it was bizarre when I finally got like married and wasn't buying my own food. And Jess would make me a sandwich with a bunch of meat on it. I was like, "What are you? She's wasting." Well, you know, I got the hand anyway. During that time, Reba, I would go over and Matt. It's the weirdest thing when you think back. When I think back to Matt and 
his emotions and what he thinks and stuff, but he just he would give me his food. He would get. He would always give me one of his burritos. He loves the. What was those burritos you love? You still love patio them? patio burritos. Thirty nine cents. <laughs> so so I, maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't that, wasn't big, that of big of a deal. <laughs> <laughs> here I'm over here, Matt. I, I see. The, <laughs> so Matt's thinking this ain't no big deal. I'm over in the corner with one tear falling to my God. This is a this is a friend for life here. This is a friend for life. But you did it. You did it. And I was like, man, this is pretty cool. And then I probably showed up more like a hungry dog. You know, you feed, yeah, you feed a sad, him. hungry dog fighting hey, his you, girlfriend. You got any burritos? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, yeah, how you doing? You got a burrito or anything? But so anyway, you, show, show up cold, shivering after giving plasma, and I'd offer him a 39 cent burrito, and he thought I was generous. It worked out. It worked still, out. still but together I mean, after all these years. Well, the, the you're, that was the time in my life where I had the most something close to what felt like the most disposable income because I had right. I had a, a scholarship. It was just a basic thing. If you keep your grade point average and right. go to a cheap state school, that paid yeah. the tuition, and my rent was a hundred dollars. And my grandma would give uh, would give me that money or something. I think I think my grandma made up the difference or paid right. for the books or whatever. And then I still. Uh, would go and deliver pizza for for money, so I had yeah. plenty of money. It was easy. It was just the easiest time, and we shared the did all that. So I I just thought it, that was a very easy time, and I continued that for many many years. People say college is the best time of your life, I and I heard them say that, and I extended that time yeah. for <laughs> another why wouldn't twenty I continue years to do that? Yeah. I continued yeah, to live in tiny rooms with my best friends and make music and do whatever I wanted. I never went to class or cared about that stuff anyway. Just did whatever, and then right. thought, why not keep this rolling? We sleep in vans and trailers and tour buses mm-hmm. and people's floors and play music and live cheap and not even have when even when we were in Emory and signed, we didn't have a residence. We lived in somebody's basement right. where we paid them two or three hundred dollars a month, and we had six bunk beds in a bedroom right. when our I, mid to late twenties. I mean, I always keep thought people were crazy. Like Reva lives by herself. I always thought I could, I, Reva, I could never do that. There's certain people, lots of friends of mine need their space, want to live on their own, all that stuff. I could never, like, if you told me, uh, like, even right now, that me and all my friends, families could probably live together somehow, if our, if our families could get along, I would probably sign up for it. I know. <laughs> so I mean, That's a challenge, though, like, all your families fun- getting yeah. along. Yeah, well, the, I, I, the that's trick, what I'm saying. The <laughs> trick to the whole thing is that you, if you can live low and do things cheap and poor, right. Then you, you're just. It just feels like freedom to me. That's when when podcasting I came totally along. It's like agree. you don't have to be good at this. You don't need a TV studio or all this stuff. You right. just. It's a, there's an excuse to do it poorly, it, like living in college. You can live poorly. You can eat poorly. You have an excuse right. for that. Embrace it. I mean, uh-huh. I, that's still my mentality. In fact, that's the mentality of our new show where I'm putting all my energy now, which is Are You right. Listening? Which is Emory's new uh, equivalent of a local band. Uh, Endeavor. It's the sa- it feels just like being in a local band on Sunday right. nights. We're streaming a show, and we're just gonna do it. We're gonna jump in because every it's it's like this really level playing field where everybody's gotta like play guitar into Skype and webcast and webcam and see if we can bring some fun and personality to it and get better each week and do new things that other people are afraid to try or don't have the right. background skills or feel embarrassed about. And we simply won't. Everything we've ever done that's worked has been highly embarrassing. Yeah. Right. That's one of the keys. It's embarrassing to look like I do and act like I do and try the things I do. But if you could get past it and to not be able to signal wealth and stuff like that, just to do it at a low bar is so much freedom. So 
in any case, that's not the biggest advertisement in the world, but come see our new Endeavor on Sunday nights at 7 o'clock uh, Eastern. It's called Are You Listening? We're doing something like a variety show where we're playing music and doing funny stuff and having guests on. Aaron Sprinkle's going to be on this week. And we're just trying – it's kind of like Wayne's World, maybe. It's kind of like a half-serious Wayne's World, I guess, is kind of what it is. But that's just, that's just the way it is. Um, yeah, I think that's what we got going on, and we have a great guest coming on in a few minutes here. But before that, Toby, have you been doing any of the grocery shopping? Yes, I went to Sam's Club yesterday, and you did. it just terrified me. It just terrified me. The peop- the, You know what terrifies me? Because lots of other people do not care at all, which I can't understand if they're right or I'm stupid. Like, I don't know if did I'm you being wear a mask? dumb. Do what? Did you wear yeah. a mask? Here's the real bad part. I made one out of a handkerchief, a, a bandana, uh-huh. and I put it around. But two minutes into the store, it was down to my nose, and I kept pulling it. And the second time I pulled, it, I was like, "I'm touching my face. This is mm-hmm. the this is mm-hmm. worse." So I just ripped it off and put it in my back pocket. I was like, I, "I'm not going to touch my face because of a mask that's trying to protect me." When I don't touch my face, is more protection. And I don't even know if this mask. Nobody is giving me any clear data. If a mask just stops me from getting people sick or kind of helps me. So what, am, what I know that touching my face isn't good. That there yes. seems to be data on that. So yeah, I just quit. I had my first outing. I feel like I haven't, it's weird. The last month has blown by and I right. realized yesterday that I haven't done a damn thing. I've been to the grocery store maybe <laughs> once and that was a few weeks ago right. anyway. And I really yeah. haven't been going anywhere. I've just got in this hunkered down mode and, and uh, Br- Bridget, I send Bridget to the store all the time. She goes to Costco. She makes these big trips. She wears the mask. She has the she protocol. Likes she likes going out. Jessica, well, Jessica's I don't, I don't know if she likes it, but I tell you what, I would sure rather her take that viral load than me. That, that's <laughs> You know what I'm saying? She's going to go to Costco, get that big viral she load. Is, I might younger. go to the corner store, get a little load, you know, because right. they say the amount that you get matters. <laughs> and it's the longer you're in the store, it matters. But anyway, uh-huh. so I, I thought I'd start thinking, maybe I'm a chicken. Maybe I'm maybe that's wrong to make her bear the brunt of that risk, right. and especially the viral load, which is a, a, my, one of my new favorite terms. So viral you went, load. You, you went to the grocery store? Yeah, what? so I went. I said, you know what? I'm going to just get in this. I'm just going to do it. You know, wearing a mask yeah. seems really silly. Right. I, but I'm like, okay, I have to just embrace this. So I wasn't trying to cheat it or whatever. It's like right. I have to just adopt this whole new normal thing. And I put the – I got an N95 mask. I put it on. I've got black gloves. I'm wearing all black. And I just walk – I go to the car. I put the mask on before I even get in the car. I'd say I'm just going to – and it was super uncomfortable. I thought it was right. hot. And can I really breathe? And, you know, I made It feels like you're going there. on a mission, right? Yes. Like it does, not, yes. it does not feel like the, I'm at the grocery store and i got to get a few things at all. Mm-hmm. It feels like, oh, my God. There are landmines around. I don't think any of them. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know where they are, but I have mm-hmm. to be ca- uh, fairly careful. Like, I don't take yes. my AirPods in or anything. Yeah, it's I, I don't take my phone in, so I won't be distracted at all. <laughs> so I went to the store. I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to just, you know, take the load myself this time. And I, I put the thing on. And, it, you know, if like if you wear a face mask to go, like uh, if, uh, uh, a hat when it's cold, but it's not really cold, it gets itchy. But if yes. it was cold outside, it's not itchy. Like the sensation, right. like your mind does the adjustment. Right. Well, once I got in the store and was all in serious mode, I was breathing through this mask and it's like this. I'm like, <sighs> and I hear it. And then eventually I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't itchy anymore. Cause I'm in, I got, I achieved the mode. Do you know right. what I'm saying? Right, like right, I was like, right, right. The, my mind adjusted to where I was like, yeah. I was breathing through the mask and I started to think it felt good. Like I liked it and I was like, 
<laughs> this intentional breathing. I've got this mask on, but I was highly embarrassed right. before that. So I was like, I know I look like a total weirdo, and everybody in the store doesn't have a mask on, but I've made this decision to lower myself to this point and be serious. But I know I feel very, very stupid, and I yeah. know I look stupid, and I've got these black gloves on, and I'm awkward looking, and I'm always uncomfortable in the grocery store anyway. So I'm doing that and just halfway embarrassed, and then I get in this deeply serious, like feels like I'm on a mission mode. Right, And I go all the way through the store, and I start to really embrace it and, and get it. And I'm like, yes, I am serious. And then all of a sudden, I just hear somebody talking to me or saying something to me. I'm like, oh, no, what, what's going on? Is it serious or whatever? And it, here I am at the checkout just looking serious as you can I, get. And somebody says to me, what, what do you think it's going to be? Uh, sir, you're in the wrong line? Nope. Uh, I love your podcast. <laughs> this guy's <laughs> I'm embarrassed as yeah. I could be about under the way a mask I look. Even, I know, I'm wearing a mask. a mask, looking like a fool, and you know, <laughs> for goodness' sakes, I hadn't been recognized in in months. It seems like years since I got recognized in public, and it's, of course, it's yesterday when I'm wearing a goofy mask and a glove, and somebody goes, he says, "I love your podcast," and I'm like, "Oh, oh, oh, oh!" I get out of my mission mode, like, "Oh, oh, you ain't uh, what's, what's your name? Thanks a lot." For- Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, and I'm super, you know, just way, way the last thing on my mind. I'm getting recognized right. in public. Because, and you're banned too, man. It's like, okay. And then the other people in the store, you know, whenever somebody recognizes you and the other people in the right. store, I, I, I just, that's always a tough moment. That, like, what are they going to ask for a picture? And then, right. I, you know, and I'm wearing, <laughs> and the other people are like, well, who's this guy? And why is he recognizing him? And I'm wearing the mask. And it just completely bumped me out of the, I'm on oh. my mission mode. And I got, got on out of there. But young man, whoever you were, thank you. It did make me feel good. It made me feel young again. But it, it, I was quite caught <laughs> off guard, <laughs> given the context. <laughs> that is shocking that you had a mask on and they recognized you. I and just, know. I mean, just from the podcast. I mean, that, I know. that oh, wow. Man, yeah, I, I, I just try to I I try to avoid everybody. The worst part for me was I uh so Jess hasn't been able to find she makes uh her own dough and uh different stuff, so she always wants needs yeast. Can't I mean it's super expensive online, it's sold out everywhere. And I'm trying she's like, maybe they have it at Sam's Club. And usually at Sam's Club it's you get a lot and it's cheap, right? So I'm like, I'm just going around like I gotta get out of here. I've been in here for now over ten minutes, and I was trying to get in and out. I you know the funniest thing was this is really this is embarrassing. This shows you. This is what makes me feel like a fool. I drew a map of my my line that I was going to go. I drew up. Jess made fun of me, but I, I said, "Okay." So I, I went. Our kids are stuck at home, and we, they got nothing to do. So I bought a inflatable pool, and they have them there for cheap, like thirty five bucks or something. I was like, "Oh, we get a little inflatable pool because we're not going to the pool anytime soon." So at least they can splash around or something. And online, an inflatable pool is like a hundred dollars. So I looked at Sam's Club, and they got them for like thirty five bucks. I was like, "Okay, I'm going there." Uh, we're not endorsed by Sam's Club, by the way. And Sam's Club, if you want to. But uh, so I made my line and I just followed the line and I went. And But what I didn't think about was for my line would be these things called humans in the way mm-hmm. of my direct line. Because I remembered the store. I, I just sat there and thought about the store, the rows. I was like, you know, I, I know these rows because we've been there bunches of times. You know, I know the Sam's Club. That's one of my, the, those big stores, the Costco. Like, I love those stores. I know it's stupid, but that's just right up my alley. So I kept having to like go, oh no. And then I was thrown off because I wasn't on my line anymore. So now I'm on a different row <laughs> without the thing I want. And I don't know. And so when I'm on the, uh, the, the wrong row, 
I just leaned down and tried to stare to see where the stuff was. I was just staring. I just leaned down real low and looked through the aisle to see if I could find where it was. Just or you know, so I can know when I go around the corner. I went around the corner, and of course, a guy was coming right around the corner, and he did not move at all. He didn't give me any space, and I know we we crossed within the three foot space. So I just, I I don't think I have it, and I think I'm overreacting. But it gets in my it gets in my head of like oh, no. no I got I got this and I have to do it this way today there were a bunch of kids like they were probably ten and under just standing on the corner while I was on my jog and I ran through a person's yard to avoid them I just went in, <laughs> off the street into a yard and avoided them so I could stay at least six feet away I was just like I just don't care you I, you're gonna call me uh, boomer or something anyway so uh, who cares I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I don't know if people figured it out yet, but if they let's just say all the governors and all the presidents and everybody in authority goes, yeah, you know what? We're reopening. You think you're going to be able to drop that mentality and get? Oh, I mean, God, you no. won't be able to get out of that mode. I mean, no. you, you, it's it's a it should be a. Right. I mean, it, it reminds me of Stockholm syndrome, which right. people I always have found that to be one of the most disturbing things about humans because clearly Stockholm syndrome is not an accident or an right. error. It is a adaptive thing that, that humans have. You get kidnapped, right. and then you fall in love with your kidnapper. That's because that's your new normal. Right. And so when you get a new normal, you, you're just gonna, you just roll. I mean, that's going to be the way it is. Right. And likewise, this situation is going to be the same. You're not going to be able to go back to just, oh, yeah, they said it's fine. And then you're going to be able to treat, you know, act normal or whatever. And I do the same thing. I walk out of there. I had to spend some time around Josh Head, of all people, yesterday. Oh, yeah. And who knows if he's really safe or not. But I was in the room with him for a couple <laughs> no. of hours packing up some stuff in our office to move. He's uh, not avoiding people. No. Right. And so I didn't wear my mask the whole time, but I've started to worry about him. And the whole time I'm coming home, I feel like, well, I definitely, I definitely have the virus now. And it, it, right. I know it takes two weeks, but you almost feel, yeah, I can feel it. I, yeah. You can feel it in your head. Like you just know it's a head game so much that there's you, you, never you, been a sickness in my life that I've known for sure I had it more it's hilarious. than COVID. I've, and it's yeah, like every other know. day. But that's that's part of your mind's adaptive functions is to just right. take you to those new places and accept new new realities and new baselines. So I I've just found it just fascinating psychologically to get to go through that kind of stuff. So yeah. I I embrace it. My my you know, my mode is just to Embrace what I can when I can. So, all right. It looks like our guest is joining us here. So let me do it. Take a second and thank Tooth and Nail, and then we will speak with her uh, briefly. Tooth and Nail, if you don't know, best record label ever created, is launching a 25% off store-wide sale across all their labels. That's Solid State, BC, Tooth yeah. and Nail for the next two weeks. Then I hope you guys can support them and get some stuff that you like. Uh, you can support the bands that you love, uh, an independent record label, Tooth & Nail, Solid State, BC. They do. They have a gospel songs imprint there. There's vinyl, there's shirts, there's box set, there's digital downloads, you name it. Pay the rent with your stimulus, join Emeryland, and then spend the rest of that at Tooth & Nail. You go to toothandnailrecords.merchnow.com and grab something while you can. And I hope you're enjoying the song. It's called Blackwater from a band of theirs called Tiger Wine. All right. Take it away, Toby. I did not even think about the idea of what would happen to our rights. And now I'm thinking it might happen to us as well. But are you seeing that in a place like Iran? Are, is it all, are they trying to even get more power and take more rights away from the people? Yeah. 
Um, well, thanks. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Um, I think the issue with this is that we're actually going to see it not only in dictatorships, like we're used to authoritarian states restricting free speech, um, restricting movement, right? Um, having an overcriminalization of different acts. I think the key thing about this is that we're going to see it in democracies. So we're going to see it in what is typically known as free societies. We're already seeing some legislation, or rather, sorry, like executive proposals that have been proposed in the U.S. around criminalization of spreading the virus. Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice wanted to propose that federal terrorism laws be applied to oh, that. Um, and, you know, and we're talking about it, it's not only if it's used as a bioweapon. I could understand that, but it would be like... Toby, for instance, if you're out, you said you're scared to go to Walmart, but let's say you're at Walmart and something's got into you and you pretend you have the virus and you go cough on somebody and say, I have COVID, haha, and run away. Now, I don't think you would do that, right. but if you did that, you could, the proposal is saying that basically you could be prosecuted under federal terrorism laws for that. Now that, that's pretty extreme, right? That's not something that we have in non-emergency conditions. And so I think it's something that we all need to be concerned about. And um, as of today, 83 countries around the world have invoked emergency powers to deal with the pandemic. And uh, the only thing I can really compare it to is what happened after 9-11 here in the U.S., um, the sort of emergency powers that were invoked to keep, you know, us in the U.S. safe from terrorist threats and also folks around the world, the way that they needed to adapt to that and countries needed to adapt to that, totally reshaped the way we travel. You know, for those of us old enough right. to remember what it was like to take a plane before then, totally reshaped the way we travel, reshaped the way we communicate, reshaped the degree to which we're okay with government surveillance mm -hmm. to protect our rights. And I think that what's happening currently with the pandemic has the potential to be of an even greater scale than what happened uh, with the ongoing war on terror. Um, and I think the key thing is how do these powers that are invoked and how do these measures relate back to a public health benefit? I mean, right now I'm in California we're all ordered to stay at home, um, you know, shelter in place right. laws. We needed social distance. We understand why we need to do that because there is a legitimate public health benefit. We're going to prevent people from getting it, protect the vulnerable, the elderly, so on. But what about the things that have no direct connection to something that is a public health benefit? In Hungary, which is up until recently was a democracy and is part yeah. of the European Union, the prime minister has completely grabbed power. It's limitless. There's no end date. And they've criminalized speech. I mean, so Hungary turned from a democracy into a dictatorship almost overnight during this pandemic. And we're going to see that ha more and more of that happening. I'm happy to go through some examples, but I think we all have to be vigilant about what could happen under the guise of emergency when yeah. people are very fearful. They're worried about dying, about passing the virus on, and they're going to accept restrictions on their freedoms much more readily than they would if we weren't in this climate of fear. I, I think where I'm at that is that this is such a trap on so many fronts. 
and our situation is so tense on every level and there's the social pressure of things and the political the polarization politically is such a trap that it makes you afraid to uh, you know, be worried about this because it makes you seem like you're not worried about that. Like to even say you don't want your civil liberties tread upon makes you sound like you're some libertarian activist or something, or or you're a, a right winger or something. Like, what camp is it going to be put me in if I ask questions about what what about my civ- civil liberties? Or maybe we should resist this, or maybe I should question this. But at the same time, we know time and time again that the fear is always going to be used, and and the creep of regulation. I mean, those are legitimate things and and there's not going to be good answers there and so that puts us in a, in a bad trap and then people like me have to confess i've been politically agnostic and uh international relations you know ignorant just for years and years and years because i mean i, I, I don't mind bearing the criticism here it didn't matter it didn't matter to me. I just live in my little independent life here being a musician doing my thing and i just stayed out of politics and stuff like that I never care who the president is, don't vote, none of that stuff. doesn't matter to me. I pride myself on just being an independent little person here. But now it's unavoidable. So now I have to pay attention to politics, and it's like, oh, yeah. Well, what was it that's always been happening in Iran and Hungary and China that I hadn't been paying attention to? Now I'm going to pay attention. And so I, I want to be able to have free thought, and I'm actually really glad to come out of it not from a team, but I ain't coming from no team or anything like that. But I hadn't been paying attention to Iran since I saw Oliver North on the TV. That's about the last time I thought about what was going on in Iran. So, um, but now, all, and I'm sure that I speak for other people who are just afraid to say it, but I don't ever really worry about international stuff, and I don't even worry about our own domestic politics until it matters to me. So I'm going to take the ignorant point of view there um, and say – Okay, I guess I'll start paying attention to what's happening in these other countries, not because I even care about them, to be honest. But I do care about me, and I am curious what how these things go. So I'll wade into that water. I'm curious if you could give us an overview of, uh, and we'll get to America, but it seems wise to pay attention to the civil liberties in places like Iran. That's a, a, something you're an expert in. Can you catch us up with what's the deal with Iran? What, what's been going on there? I've heard, you know, of course, I know more about it than I'm saying here, but not a lot more. So could you give us an overview of what what are these situations of human rights and how do these things actually go when times get tough? Because, yeah. of course, it could come here. Well, that's a great question. And I think um, there's a question about how authoritarian states have dealt with this that doesn't only extend to Iran, but actually extends to where this all started in China. Um and I see that now after, you know, China has come through some of the worst of it, uh, I'm not clear on the numbers. To be honest, I'm not sure if we can really uh, view those numbers as credible because there have been different discussions around whether or not that data can be relied on. Um, but if we think that they've come through the worst of it, which I think they have by indications, um, now there's sort of like a recasting of the narrative Uh, because China is sending protective gear all around the world. It's offering assistance to different countries that are now in need over a problem that really was created by the Communist Party there. So, yes, they're not, I mean, depending on what theory you believe, let's just say the virus originated in the, the Wuhan wet market, right? They're not responsible for the origination of the virus, other than maybe keeping the wet markets open and other things that we could point to, right? But what happened after 
the onset of the virus, after there was credible reporting about this new virus that no medical professionals had seen before, after Chinese doctors were blowing the whistle on this and trying to raise awareness about this, I mean, this went on for a full month. And because they are in an authoritarian state, those whistleblowers were met with threats to, to be silent. They were intimidated into not speaking about what was happening. And you know what? This affects all of us now. So their cover-up, the Chinese state's cover-up, is essentially what exacerbated this. They didn't get it under control, and it, now it's everywhere. So it does matter to me whether or not there is an authoritarian state in power somewhere else. Because a lot has been made around, well, look at China's excellent effort in getting this under control. Because they're an authoritarian state, they can kind of order lockdowns in a way that we can't in the U.S. where we value our freedom. But my submission to that is that's all well and good. But what happened at the beginning? It's because right. of an authoritarian state and the climate of secrecy that an authoritarian authoritarian state promotes that we're in this mess in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I reject the notion of China as a global leader on this, who's done, you know, the appropriate thing and that, wow, we can really learn something from them. I think that's absolutely false and that we need to be very careful about the way that authoritarian states deal with these matters. Now, yeah, go ahead. Well, so, I was going to say, what what is yeah. the, what is their goal in the cover up? They just don't want to, be held responsible like when, when they found out this stuff and they used you know their authoritarian rule are they it is just that they don't want to look bad or that something could happen like i mean it really is in a in a, almost in a sense ego or, or like we are yeah. the great china it's about them looking bad um, you know, they're a global superpower and they do not want to look like they don't have a situation under control. They've been the site of other virus outbreaks like SARS, right? So right. we have a situation in which they're very densely populated. There's very densely populated mm. cities. The regulation standards are not what they are in the U.S. or in the European Union, for instance. And so you have situations like the wet markets in which there's all these different animals alongside each other who should not be alongside one another breeding these pathogens, right? So there's a, there's a question of regulation. There's a question of not looking bad. They want to project power and strength. And I think they thought they could nip this in the bud, but right. that didn't happen. And it, and combined with the Lunar New Year celebrations in which, you know, 5 million residents of Wuhan or Hubei province left and and we're around the world. We live in a wow. globalized world now. And it, the world is right. even different from when we had this, you know, the SARS outbreak. It's just right. uh, travel and also China's position in the world. So it was a cover up. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, theories out now that, that legal theories that could say that that's a that's criminal. That cover right. up is criminal. Um, and, you know, this is not a this is not a statement about the Chinese people. I think a lot of things have gotten conflated there. We see that there's you know, racist attacks on um, people of Asian uh, origin around the world. And, and that is just totally unacceptable. I mean, these people are, uh, you know, the ones who want to speak out about what their state is doing or being prohibited from doing so. Our criticism and our scrutiny should be on the state. And, you know, governments are different from their people, and especially so in authoritarian states where a lot of these um, leaders are unelected and unaccountable. They don't represent their people. 
So do you think even them helping and reaching out and sending the PPE and those things are part of a, a narrative control thing more than, than propaganda? You know, just... Well, something that China has done really well and that, in fact, I think um, we in the U.S. need to think about as, you know, we move forward with the election of a new president and, and kind of thinking about what we want our presidential administration to do and appear in the world is China has invested a lot of time into the United Nations. So as a state, they involve, they invest heavily in multilateral organizations. They invest heavily in that kind of international cooperation that gives them this soft power. You know, they have real power, real economic power. They're the number two economy in the world. I don't know how things stack up post pandemic, but they're until recently their number two economy in the world. And um, they also have a lot of soft power because of the sort of influence they wield. And those things are really important. You know, I'm sure some of it is a humanitarian gesture. It's not that, you know, they're, that they're not doing that. Of course they are. But um, a lot of it also relates to the, the role that they're playing in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, you know, because the U.S. was always the global leader, uh, kind of the global moral leader. And also mm-hmm. in times of crisis, we're the country that has gone forward and sort of stepped up. And that's really lacking right now, unfortunately. And so right. China has filled that void. And to a lesser extent, Russia has also played a huge role there um, globally. Wow. So there's a lot that we need to um, take stock of and kind of prioritize what sort of role we want to play moving forward. And this is one reason it matters because, you know, it, it's a lovely thought to just think, oh, we could just be by ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I live here in Santa Monica, like, beautiful. You know, I could just spend my days like not worrying about the state of the world, but at the same time, it actually directly impacts us. And so we are very interconnected and we need to invest in that. Yeah. It seems more clearer than ever that, that these things are, are the thresholds and the margins are, are much thinner than we thought from what our supply lines are to what our government is capable of or would do or what other governments might do. Um, it, it feels to me that, that there's a real sense of, uh, I guess it's responsibility on the people to be informed, but the problem is being informed is always very, very difficult because of such amount of, I I assume we're being exposed to propaganda every day when we don't know it and things like that. And the messages at the highest level are one thing, and then there's our individual lives, and it's, it's, it's quite confusing. So when, if we're thinking about China on the on the global stage like that um being authoritarian what what is it what are the things to be on the lookout for that that they are actually already doing that that might also china and iran both what are the things that go on there that we need to actually look out for here and know how to be aware of them well you know just to address the Um, the piece on Iran. So the interesting thing about Iran is that while I do work on the country because there is an authoritarian regime and they are a massive violator of human rights, when it comes to the handling of this virus, they're just simply overwhelmed. Um, So they are, Iran is the epicenter of the virus in the Middle East. And that's how it got spread through the region. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons we we think is because flights from China continued even after the onset of the virus, whereas a lot of other countries shut that down. But one reason that the Iranian leadership claimed that they had to, or they haven't admitted to it necessarily, but it's that they're very economically dependent 
on the Chinese. And part of that is actually because of the U.S. Um, program of unilateral sanctions on Iran. So, you know, it's a very mixed picture. Um, I'm a sort of fierce critic of the human rights abuses of the Iranian regime against its people, against their own people. Um, but in this case, it's almost as if they had all the disadvantages of an authoritarian state and none of the advantages. So the sort of competence advantage that China likes to portray, and as an argument, this is an argument that a lot of authoritarian states make for why they prefer their model of governance, the idea that they can get things done more quickly. You know, democracies are messy. They require consensus. A lot of things are gridlocked, right? In this case, it doesn't even work in Iran's case. So the sad news is not only did the downsides of an authoritarian regime, the secrecy, the non-transparency, all of that affect and sort of scale up the level of crisis there. But they also don't have any of the competitive advantages that China has in terms of being competent, in terms of getting a quick lockdown on this. I mean, they only just started uh, you know, sheltering folks in place recently, and now those restrictions are gonna be lifted. So they're handling things very differently. And I actually don't think it's a point I mean, my point of global concern at the moment isn't as much with what the Iranian state is or isn't doing because they're almost kind of completely overwhelmed with the spread of the virus in their own country. Um, but on China, I think one thing to keep in mind in terms of propaganda, because that was an excellent question. One thing that I saw that was really disturbing is CGTN, which is Chinese state TV. Um, they have a lot of other language affiliates. So they broadcast in Arabic, English, et cetera. Um, and on their Arabic affiliate, they are uh, claiming they have short videos saying that the virus is a bioweapon created in a U.S. laboratory or that it was a bioweapon that was created, manufactured and introduced to the Chinese population. And they're blaming the U.S. for it. And there's millions of gullible people mm -hmm. who are falling for it. Um, they're liking the video. They're commenting that they can't believe this. And it's become a really strong conspiracy theory. And it's similar to the efforts of the KGB in the 80s to claim that a HIV AIDS was actually something manufactured by the U.S. government. So I see a lot of similarities there. But that's propaganda that's winning. It's winning globally. And a lot of people now think that the virus was actually created in the U.S., yeah, I, I believe that, not that the virus is created here, but I, I believe that there's got to be narratives in every territory that you that would be unfathomable to believe that would be ob seemly, seemingly true to them because even in, in here we've got plenty of gullible people and p plenty right. of ignorant people like me that don't really know what to believe or what to look at. Uh, and so that's not surprising. It almost feels to me that the future of things like war will be you know, in the information space more than the soldier on the beach space. And so a lot of times when there's real conflict goes on in the world, it's not until afterwards where the period of conflict was named. And sometimes you're already in some period of real conflict before you even know it. And so part of that feels this way to me, information-wise, that, I mean— I have no idea what, what's really going on, and, and it's pretty hard even from our own government. And then when you have these, the UN and the WHO and stuff like this, and they're all players in, in these giant games. I mean, they just clearly are. And so it's it's a very difficult time. It seems that China, for instance, like you said, is supporting the WHO, and it seems that our government, it sounds like Trump is saying, he, he seems like he is lining up with people to cast doubt upon them. So that's that to me is frightening and frightening because 
I don't even have a very strong opinion about it. I'm not inclined. I'm, I guess I'm naturally inclined to think the WHO is full of shit, to be honest. Right. But that lines me with Donald Trump. And, and that gives you an enemy. A, that gives you somebody yeah, to blame besides right. ourselves, right? Like it, it, it almost feels good. And so where that takes me is, but but is, but wait a second, is Donald Trump then putting himself in the position of anti-authoritarian now, or is he the one trying to take over and be authoritarian? Like that's a very confusing question to me, to be honest. Well, I mean, look, there's a lot that could be said about Donald Trump. I think um, just that's, tr- that's very true. <laughs> yeah, you know, but my position on him since the start, because I don't really. I mean, I'm a registered Democrat, uh, whatever, but it's a bit more (laughs) just, you know, uh, but it's a bit more like I don't necessarily have one view on issues. And especially when it comes to foreign policy, which is the area in which I work, a lot of times there are going to be Republican lawmakers that are more aligned with the policies that I'm pushing. So I've never been very wedded to um, the sort of two party system that we have here in the U.S. I think in a lot of other countries you see the multi-party systems, you see a very different scenario. And so it's always been curious to me that we only have these two options, uh, two real options anyway. And so, um, but the thing that has been consistent about Donald Trump since the beginning and that I saw right when he was elected is the authoritarian tendencies. So the only reason that you know, we don't descend into that here in the U.S. is because we have really strong democratic institutions. Meaning you think that he would take that power if it was available to him? Because some of the stuff he's doing seems contrary to that. He he seems to be, I know he said something weird a couple of days ago, but he seems to be happy to let the governors handle these things and take the blame or whatever. Like, he doesn't seem like he's using this as a power grab. That doesn't seem to be the case. The interesting thing is that I actually think that's a competency issue. Mm-hmm. So again, it gets to this, you know, authoritarian as being competent point of view. He, I think he aspires to authoritarianism. It is his natural bent. He likes to have all the credit, all the control, all the yeah. power, you know, um, he would love to rule by decree. And, you know, that's why people have said, you know, you're not a king and there is a Congress that's going to check your power. There's judicial oversight. You're not going to be able to just do whatever you want. And I think he's found that very inconvenient. The fact that all these, it's not like campaigning. When he was on the campaign trail, I think, I don't know if he, ex- I don't think he even expected to win. And then when he did, he realized you actually have to be in the business of governing. And that is much easier said than done. And I don't think he actually has the competence to be able to be a true authoritarian because it actually involves executing on all these decisions. It isn't only saying, I want it this way, that way, and the other way. So I think he's quite happy to have, so I think it's more of a personality quirk that we're not there less than a desire. And so that's good for us ultimately, because what needs to happen is we don't want our democratic institutions to be chipped at any more than they already have in these past few years, because things like this are really fragile. I mean, we, the U.S. is such an incredible example to a lot of the world in terms of our governance structure. And it would be a shame to have that be eroded because executive power just became limitless. And because we had somebody who was willing to use that. Um, and we've had successive pre- uh, presidential administrations that have really pushed the bounds of executive power. So a lot of that started, as I said, with the war on terror. It started in the post 9-11 area. You saw George W. Bush's administration really pushing the limits of executive power. Obama followed suit. He did a lot of things that pushed um, the boundaries of executive power. And now we have Trump doing a similar thing. So we need to 
we need to pull back from that in the U.S. because uh, that's anytime there's executive power, particularly during an emergency that doesn't have legislative oversight, that doesn't have judicial oversight, that sets us up for really bad decisions that don't come under the scrutiny of people that we've elected to kind of ensure that thing that there's a check and ba- checks and balances, basically. Mm-hmm. Is there a chance, like like you you were talking earlier about Hungary, and so mm-hmm. I, when when you uh, and you you've written about Hungary and and linked on, on some of your uh, social media posts about it, um, I, I had zero clue about Hungary. I did not know the name of the leader or anything, and then I started just trying to look up and, and Victor Orban. I might be saying his name wrong, but uh, he like you said he almost overnight gained way more power and there was supposed to be an election and he used, so it feels as if several countries are going, wait a minute, this, this, uh, COVID thing, who cares if it kills people or whatever, this is an opportunity, but what does it actually look like if, if I wake up today and I'm going to, I'm a Hungarian, what, uh, are there, are there new dangers? Am I waking up to a scarier world for myself and my family? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the case, you know, and this isn't only happening in Hungary, so I can also explain where else it's happening. But in Hungary, what it's actually done is that um, in addition to these sort of sweeping new powers that he has that are unlimited in scope, um, and like I said, they effectively turned Hungary's democracy into a dictatorship almost overnight, um, it also created two new crimes and they're both punishable by five-year prison sentences. One is the crime of publishing false facts that interfere with the protection of the public, and one is the crime of interfering with quarantine or isolation. Now, you know, some people may hear that and be like, yeah, that, you know, that sounds good, right? Like, we wouldn't want people spreading misinformation about the pandemic. I think the problem is that those laws are extremely vague, And therefore, they're easily susceptible to abuse. So, you know, right now, for example, if somebody kind of disagreed, let's say that law was here in the U.S., right? If somebody disagreed with what I was saying about Trump's handling of the pandemic, apparently then I would be eligible for a conviction and a sentence of up to five years, right? So that should put into perspective, I mean, what we're talking about here, like they're And that's what Hungary, I mean, Viktor Orban has been an aspiring dictator for some time. So in a sense, this legislation was passed and overnight gave him these huge powers. But he's been on that path for a while. And we see similar things from the leaders in the Philippines and Brazil. It's usually these strong men that warn about, you know, the disease and the terror and the lack of stability that outsiders bring. And they uh, usually campaign on nationalist, populist politics. Maybe that sounds familiar. Um, And this is a certain personality type and bent that then is really primed to then try to go for these power grabs because they believe that they're they can justify it. And this pandemic provides a perfect pretext for that. Um, Viktor Orban's power grab has no discernible connection to a benefit for public health. So that is the line where where it's different is is the the you can, if you can't trace it a degree or two to public health or, or a direct connection then that is where we can really begin to be suspicious basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one way of looking at this is that you know, um 
governments were totally unprepared around the world. They were unprepared for this pandemic. What I think we're at um, 2 million confirmed cases now, more than 100,000 deaths, right? So this, this is a pandemic of magnitude that none of us have seen, right? Um, Unless we were alive in 1918. Um, And at the beginning, the establishment of effective testing and containment policies, that could have mitigated the spread of the virus. But because most folks in charge failed to, to execute on any of those strategies, we're now seeing this trend where there are these policies that are introduced that supposedly are supposed to safeguard our health and safety, but they really trample on human rights and civil liberties. So, I mean, there's some questions that we can ask. Uh, There's a bit of a checklist of what are the things that make a law okay or not okay? Um, Happy to rattle through some of them. I'd love to hear a checklist. Yeah, I would too. Yeah, just like when we're thinking about these laws. So one thing is, you know, are they lawful, necessary, and proportionate, right? So what I was talking about with that U.S. Department of Justice debate on whether or not federal terrorism laws can be applied, why do we need to do that? You know, we can just prosecute folks that really have weaponized this thing or or, are going to under the state criminal laws. I mean, I don't see why we need to get the feds involved and especially federal terrorism laws, you know, there's other ways to charge those folks and that just risks abuse. Um, another thing is they should be time bound. Um, so there should be sunset clauses, right? And uh, a lot of these powers that are being introduced have no clear end date. So I don't think that's appropriate. I mean, they can have it expire in a few months from now and then they can reassess at the time. If the pandemic is ongoing, they can say, you know what, we still need this. And there should be some legislative, you know, whether that's a Congress, a parliament, what, you know, whatever you call it in the country that you're in, there should be some oversight there. There should be an ability for courts to review this, see if it's legal. And none of that should be prevented just with this sweeping executive power. And we can reassess on a rolling basis if these measures are necessary. Um, a few other quick things is this is an obvious one. Countries should stop arresting and silencing whistleblowers. And those folks who critiqued a government's COVID-19 response. Um, we see that in Iran. So, you know, we've, you know, you've asked about Iran. We saw that initially. Now they're just too overwhelmed. <laughs> but initially there were folks who were really critical of the Iranian state's response and they were putting, being put in jail. And at the moment, our jails are already overcrowded. Our jails, our prisons, our detention centers, and they risk becoming you know, super spreaders of this virus, we don't need to be adding to the prison population. First of all, that chills speech inappropriately, but also just from a public health perspective, it's a terrible idea, right? Right. That's another thing. Um, the last thing I, I think I want to draw, well, there's two last things that might be of interest and that I want to draw our attention to. One is around elections. So Bolivia, which went through this, uh, you know, transition with Abel Morales being, kicked out of office, leaving office, however you want to phrase what happened there. But it's a really tenuous transitional government situation. And they were suppo- this was supposed to be an interim government that would hold elections. And then, you know, the country would popularly elect who they want. And now those elections have been postponed. And this was a very critical election. And it's due to the pandemic. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of concerns that that interim government would love to just hold on to power forever because there's no guarantee that they would be elected into office. Wow. And I think they rather enjoy the position. 
So that should be a cautionary tale for all the other countries around the world that are going to have elections coming up. Um, South Korea just dealt with it. Uh, I think it was yesterday they had elections, but they wore face masks, used sanitizer, whatever. We're going to have really critical elections in November. And uh, we need to be prepared. I don't know if that's an online balloting system. I, I don't know what that is, but there needs to be a plan. And right now there's no plan from what I understand. And I don't think we can assume that by then everything's going to be normal, normal, whatever that means. Um, things are not going to be completely normal until we have a vaccine. And, you know, that could be two years off. Right. So uh, we need a plan for that. Um, and then the very last thing uh, is on data surveillance. And I can get into that if it's of interest, but it is. It's a great interest. Yeah. 25 countries around the world right now are looking into, uh, you know, serious data surveillance uh, plans to basically monitor the spread of this virus, or at least like that's how they're categorizing it, right? Um, and so this would introduce mass surveillance, which I think should be of concern to all of us because that really infringes on our privacy, right? So the programs that are being considered involve mobile data tracking, apps to record personal contact with others, CCTV networks equipped with facial recognition, permission schemes to go outside, and even drones to enforce social isolation regimes. And um, all of this is, you know, being supposedly, I mean, to some extent, this is true, to some extent, we have to question it, but it's being deployed for contact, contact tracing, to enforce quarantines, to assess, you know, general trends on how the virus might be spreading. Um, but yeah, this is like, this is quite frightening. Now, in some countries, it's more extreme, like China, Iran, and Russia, they've used um, digital surveillance measures that really threaten individuals' right to privacy. Um, but Armenia and Israel have passed sweeping laws that threaten that privacy by requiring telecoms companies to turn over phone call histories and things like that. Israel tapped into a whole trove of information that's supposed to be used for counterterrorism, and they, they're using it now to fight the pandemic. Um, but also these data protection uh, you know, policies are being considered here in the U.S., so they're being considered here in the U.S., they're being considered in France, Germany, India, Italy, Poland, Singapore, the U.K., and, and those are democracies. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's something for us to really be wary of and how that's being used and what kind of privacy guarantees we have. I, I think the big, the, I was going to say, the big, the, one of the big fears, too, though, is that because of a pandemic, there really is fear. Like, it's almost like fear porn or whatever, and and so... When I think, oh man, I wouldn't mind it if our government just made everybody stay home and so we could get past this thing. Like, there's part of me that wants yeah. to give up my rights. And then that's why I was so fascinated by, you know, your work is that it, it doesn't go back, right? Is that, is that really true? Like, once you give them up your rights, you don't get them back? So this is a super interesting question. Now, like different people have suggested if we just imposed martial law in the beginning, because, you know, there was studies that showed that if everybody was made to stay at home for two weeks, the whole virus would be eradicated from the U.S. It could be reintroduced if we open the borders and if people came from other countries, whatever. But here it would be gone. Yeah. Um, the argument for that should have been at the beginning. Right. So when right. the virus has just been introduced into the country, there could be a real if it was a quickly agreed on and if there was the appropriate congressional oversight and all the rest of it. Right. There could have been a policy to do aggressive containment. And if that involved tapping into some 
data and things like that, then it could be weighed and decided. And there would be a clear public health benefit that warranted such a measure. I think what we're dealing with now is too little too late. And so the measures that are being proposed are not going to effectively contain anything other than the things that we're agreeing to. Like I'm following shelter in place in California because I can see how there's a clear public health benefit, right? I'm not saying that we shouldn't be undertaking measures. It's just how do those measures relate to what we're purportedly trying to fight? And in in respect to like, do you get those rights back? I mean, that's a question, right? Um, In China, I think it was much easier for them to militarily encircle Wuhan because the population there is used to more Um, sort of draconian kind of incursions on their freedom of movement and all of that. You know, there's more of a community culture. It's less about individualism. So there's a cultural aspect to that as well. Um, But I think now we're past that question, right? So like what's happening now is like there can't be the sort of, um, there will be contact tracing if we get the numbers down. And if, you know, as we've heard from Anthony Fauci and other experts, if there's like repetitive weeks in which, the, the rate of infections are down, they might switch to those strategies. But I think the time for it has passed. And I think we need to be vigilant about what's being proposed as safeguarding our rights. And if those things are done, what's the end date? Mm-hmm. Like, when is it going to end? Because the policies uh, from the war on terror, some of them, a lot of them have been dismantled. Some of them last to this day. And so that's from 2001. I mean, we're talking right. like 19 years later, right? So... So to, to me, the digital one and the tracking is the most fascinating one because we all have a practical understanding. When we talk about martial law, uh, okay, I, I guess there's times when martial law is the right thing, but everybody would mostly understand that to be a temporary thing. That's, an e- that's the easiest one that you could see as temporary and visible, and every single person understands it. The, the surveillance one is the trickiest possible one because it's actually the easiest one to accept. It's an app on my phone. I already give up all this privacy. I love this having the Gmail. I know. I, you know, that ship has sailed. We already, we already have internalized the fact that we're tracked and and dealt with it. So that one is the actually easiest one to give up, but it's the one with the most long term uh, potential for harm, in my opinion. I mean, and I, I'm, I'm somewhat of like to think about the longer term future and technology anyway. But if we were to have super advanced AI or anything like that in, in the future, a surveillance state that was 100% like engaged there and effective and had tracking, that would actually be the first ever dictatorship or authoritarian system that would have virtually no chance of ever having a rebellion against it. Can you imagine any authoritarian system that was that really could know with microphones and uh, computer vision if people were meeting or talking behind closed doors. You could really stomp out any possible rebellion no matter how, you know, just, it's the most dystopic yeah. possible thing would be in it's the 1984. Yeah, exactly, but, but right? just way beyond that, if you had super powerful AI involved and stuff like that, it would just be a permanent, like, thousands of years of not, nothing like the rebellions not in every other revolution is possible for the people to rise up and meet and do these things but if you really gave up all of your privacy and you had no way to even have a, a conversation with another person you can't even plan the beginnings of any type of rebellion that's the one that really gets freaky uh, but it's also the easiest one to accept and it's the one i'm actually most likely to accept right away if we could just get phones 
if it could tell my temperature, I'll share it on my health app. Then can I go to work? Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. It's nothing like Marshall. I get a free band. It even tells me my steps I yeah, took today. It's great. That's so cool. Thank uh, you, the, Donald. Yes. <laughs> it's the most scariest one long term and the easiest to accept right. near term. So I, I have no idea even really had to, you know, we got to do something. Well, on that point, I mean, funny, you know, that you should mention that that would be the scariest kind of authoritarian state one could imagine. I mean, that's what China is building right now. Right. It's scary. So they've enacted martial law for a month. They've enacted a massive state surveillance program, and that predates the pandemic, obviously. But it's what enables them to keep, you know, a million or more Uyghurs. They're a Muslim minority and um Jingpeng, I think it's Jingpeng province. Um, they that's what enables them to keep them there and track their movements, right? So there's this in, incredibly vast state surveillance program that China has created. They're also creating an alternate internet. Sometimes it's called an intranet, and essentially it's cut off from the global internet, right? Um, Iran also has a program around that, and different countries around the world um, are in the differing stages of that. But it goes beyond an internet that's just filtered. It's like actually just another platform in which you're just completely cut off from the global net. So that that it's is a false reality building. almost, right? Yeah. Like if, if you have a controlled internet that you populate with your stuff, that's not, I mean, you're in a something like a simulation or a false reality that you live in. I mean, that's it's not that far off. It starts with a text-based intranet and then expands to, I mean, our worlds are digital. So if those are controllable and confinable, they just become false or separate, you know, realities. And so that's what's already happening in China. But then there's a real lesson and a takeaway for us here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, we give so much of our data over to big tech and a lot of people say, just like you noted, right, that you, you've happily gone into those agreements, too, that really infringe on your privacy, sometimes without us really realizing, even though we agree to these uh, kind of agreements, but or user agreements, rather. But, um, you know, a lot of times I hear people say, well, I'm not doing anything wrong, so I don't need to worry about, like, what, what are they going to see about me? So what's the big deal, mm-hmm. you know? But it's really about the principle of the thing. Like, you might not be somebody who's an organized criminal or who's planning to do something that's technically illegal under the laws, but you don't know when the laws change. You don't know when uh, types of free speech are criminalized. You don't know how that can be used and weaponized against you. And it also doesn't have to do with political issues. It can do with now thinking about the pandemic, you know, there's discussion of giving immunity passports to people. Right. So people who, who have had right. the virus, who have antibodies in their bloodstream can then go about, about, you know, go about their day and they will be in a different kind of health hierarchy than mm-hmm. people who are high risk, who are not able to do that, who are going to suffer economically or otherwise. And we could have a system in which there's different classes of folks based on health. You know, that can also be extended to genetics. That's why there's so much criticism of um, turning over, you know, using 23andMe or any of these sort of like ancestry services because it, it, it completely tracks all your DNA. And, and that's a, that can be a big problem in a world in which, there aren't restrictions on how that's used and how you're seen in that hierarchy and how it disadvantages you. So we'll have new whole sets of, I mean, to me, it seems like the divide really here will be that I feel that left and right are more and more of a misnomer of, 
of the sides. I genuinely feel that the bigger divide that's coming and emerging is a class one. And, and and that is going to relate to genetics and, uh, of course, there's minorities and stuff like that involved, but it's almost just the poorer classes. And this one is just going to accelerate that. It The people with more health risk, that are in poverty, they have more underlying conditions, they it, it's just they're the ones that are going to be more restricted than, than the, that'll be part of the hierarchy, it seems like. And if you base it on health. Even even still, now it's the people that are healthier get more advantages and, and stuff like that. And that, that sounds like a really dangerous way to go because I don't see how – I mean, it, the, the people that are always disadvantaged are, are by class, it seems like. And that's probably – is that true internationally, you think? Like minorities and what color skin you have varies from place to place, but it's the people who have the, the least uh, wealth usually are the ones that are discriminated against and as the hierarchies and authorities authorities grab power more than anything else? I think it definitely depends on the system. So, um, you know, it's all about marginalized populations, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a class issue in terms of just access to resources and Mm -hmm. wealth and what that can buy you in a state. If you're in a country where it's very stratified, then there's like an uber wealthy population and everybody else is kind of just poor, right? So like it's a different stratification than here, even though in the US we have this sort of diminishing middle class, there still is, you know, some significant chunk of the population that makes a certain amount. Um, It seems like a emerging peasant class though, I mean, versus like a a certain race or a certain other type of demographic. It, It seems like it stratifies like that. Like, oh, the peasant, the middle class shrinks, more of them are in the peasant class. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we see that, I think, with, you know, the rise of corporate power mm-hmm. um, that you, you mentioned AI, as as more jobs become automated, what's that going to do? You know, like, there's right. definitely a lot of worrying trends that are sort of creating a perfect storm of that. I think when it comes to this virus, I mean, initially, it was sort of peddled as the ultimate equalizer. But I think we see just what a fiction that actually yeah. is, oh, because yeah. here in the U.S., um, it's disproportionately affecting lower income folks, folks who don't have um, health insurance, folks who are undocumented, um, definitely uh, minority groups that might be more predisposed to certain genetic um, conditions or you know underlying health risks, right? And um, I just think about the essential workers conversa- conversation. I mean, we're all praising our essential workers. And to me, it really seems like what we mean mm-hmm. is expendable. Cause like, yes, exactly. You right. know, those are the folks who are doing the minimum wage jobs that a lot of people don't want to increase their hourly pay. And they're now like, we're relying on them. You know, I have right. the luxury of working from home that puts me in a different class from um, the person who's our waste disposal guy. And, you know, this is, so this is not an honest conversation to say that this is an equalizer. This is disproportionately affecting parts of the population. And once we have things like immunity passports, I mean, that's going to introduce a kind of classification that I don't think should exist in a society, but it should be why we're all concerned about our privacy rights. Yeah, so we both have the people that are the lower skilled and lower class workers. So they have two big options here. One of them is their jobs went away. And so then they'll have to be taken care of by the higher class and the tax pay, all that stuff. Or we just need them to do the dangerous, bad jobs. And those right. are the two options. 
you know, and the rest of us can work on our laptops or we're in this system or we, whatever it is, but you know, half of them lose their job and the other half have to do the work that you call expendable. And that, and then a lot of the people that lost their jobs with the automation going the way it is and more people working from home and that's not going to go so much back. So a lot of these people have lost their jobs. is just going to speed up that whole thing of automation. Like the, a lot of those people won't have jobs again, maybe ever. So that, you know, on a positive note, I hope that one takeaway that we would have from this in the U.S. at least, because every country is going to respond to this differently. But in the U.S., given our specific socioeconomic considerations and the ongoing conversation around this, um, I would hope that we would come out of this with an appreciation for why a social safety net is actually so important. Um, It seems that nobody wants any kinds of like, you know, government support policies when we're not in an emergency, but then yeah. when we are in an emergency, everybody's wondering how they're going to pay exactly. their bills and they don't have a social safety net to rely on, right? So I would hope that we would acknowledge the importance of that and that we would also acknowledge our minimum wage workers who, you know, we we, we need to move towards a $15 an hour minimum wage. There's different proposals on like why that won't work for some small businesses, this, that, and the other. But the truth is that those wages have remained stagnant and they're only getting passed in some states. And there needs to be a better effort around that because these are the folks who are saving us right now. Well, the small businesses all be gone. So that argument, it gets easier. <laughs> you just don't have to worry about them anyway. So, yeah. but, oh my yeah, gosh. I could. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, just real quickly, I know we've had you for a while and we really do appreciate your time. I just would hate to not hit on, I mean, you are so well-versed in Iran. One of the, so what I constantly see or have seen, okay, first question, less than, it, it seems this, it seems almost like yesterday I thought we were going to World War Three or something because we killed <sighs> Soleimani, right? Yeah. And, and what, what was that? What were, were like what what, what did that, that like I, I'd never heard of that guy before and then one mm-hmm. day I heard about him and thought and everybody's telling me Trump is going to murder us all I, I mean I saw that everywhere and so we're, what what was your take on it what what if you can give me a brief understanding yeah definitely so um Qasem Soleimani was the head of the Quds Force which is part of a sort of I won't get into all the structure of it, but Iran has a regular military, and then it also has something called the IRGC or the Revolutionary Guards. And they're tasked with sort of upholding the ideals of the revolution, if you will. And they have different sections, but one section is something that deals with extraterritorial um, adventures, if you will. So the folks who are in the Iranian, you know, forces that are in Iraq or that are in Afghanistan or that are in Syria are the Quds Force. And um, Qasem Soleimani was ahead of that force. And he was almost sort of like a legendary figure because of a lot of propaganda, a lot of state propaganda about him that sort of uplifted, uplifted him as this mythical character. But the reality is, you know, he's a complicated character. He was a war hero from the Iran-Iraq war um, in the 80s. And so a lot of people knew him as a sort of like seasoned war vet um, and sort of like humble, you know, pious man. But he was also responsible for incredible war crimes, devastating war crimes in Syria. I mean, he, he was responsible for, the, you know, the massacre of villages, right, before the Russians came in and before the Russians kind of took the mantle of killing civilians there. Um, so I would have wanted to see him in a war crimes trial 
the kind of work that I do focuses on international justice. It focuses on bringing people to task for war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, et cetera. I would have wanted to see him in a war crimes trial. Um, I did not think that that was the right move. Um, there's been different theories on whether that was an assassination, whether that was a targeted killing, like legally speaking, whether we were in a state of war, was he a legitimate military target, et cetera, et cetera. For me, the bottom line is simply that um, because he was associated with this so closely with the state, it sort of normalizes that kind of killing and it sets right. a dangerous precedent for what you know, the U.S. is not always going to be the global superpower. Like, we're going to have to accept that, you know, empires come, they go, global superpowers rise, they fall. Eventually, we in a situation where China's calling the shots. We've already seen what's happened in this pandemic and how things are reordering already, right? Um, would China then think it's okay to just go ahead and, you know kill somebody in the Trump administration because they thought that they were a threat to Chinese security. Right. Especially if you tie that back to what you're saying with them doing things that seem like the moral, like there's that little bit of a vacuum because of the way we're acting that people like China are saying, look, we're moral. We're the helpers. We're the global superpower that's sending out aid. Like once you get, <laughs> I know this from all of my years involvement with Christianity. Once you feel that you're the moral uh, hero, you just you you actually can justify almost anything. So we and that's as America, we've been able to say, yeah, we've done a lot of bad stuff, but this is because we're the good guys. But if you really did have a global superpower that wasn't us, that really did feel justified, and that they were the moral authority on the world, and we're doing a lot of good things, then you you could I could certainly see that happening. And then you know it's possible that we seem like the the bad guy, and then that would seem like a justified thing to much of the world. That does sound quite dangerous. <laughs> you know, the U.S. government killed Soleimani with a drone. And there is a drone program that doesn't have congressional oversight and, frankly, doesn't have judicial oversight. And so, you know, just flip the script and let's think that China mm -hmm. has a drone program right. and that they're just going to eliminate who they want. And they're going to justify it in a similar way to the way that U.S. administrations have done as guarding against terror you know, securing the security of the globe could get really dicey, right? Yes, so yes. in my view, we need to move more towards a rules-based system and take it out of the sort of military theater and really work on if somebody has done bad things, if they are a war crimes, you know, a, a war crimes perpetrator or whatever, put them on trial. I think it's, I got a lot of uh, comments on what a radical idea, you know, that somehow, and the fact that somehow trials are seen as a more radical idea than droning people is really telling for me. It's well, not we'd the have to have a count, but who is the authority globally? That's people resist that, that there's some global authority, the UN or whoever, like who is the, the real power though, that should be able to adjudicate such things is I think we're Americans. There's an international criminal court that is treaty based and that a lot of countries have ratified around the world. And if as the U S we would ratify the Rome statute, which is a statute that gives the, the court jurisdiction, and really buy into this model, understanding that we, and by we, I mean the U.S. government, that the U.S. government could also use it to bring, you know, people or individuals who committed bad acts to task at the court. Like, if we invest in a rules-based system, and if the globe invests in it, then we would have that forum. But because the U.S., 
chooses to, you know, undermine that system, we don't have a working international system. I hope we get there. I think we've made a lot of progress since decades ago when such an idea would be, you know, un- inconceivable. It used to be inconceivable that you could put a head of state on trial. And now you can. So I think we're, we've come a long way. There's a lot of work to be done. But I, as a globe, I think we would be much safer if uh, leaders would understand that their power does not last forever. And that um, in order to live in this sort of globalized, you know, multilateral world that we're moving towards, uh, we need to strengthen our international institutions. And that's okay. If, we're all, if we all act as good actors and feed into it equally and resist abuse and create that kind of normative culture in which that's accepted, then I don't see the risks. I but think we're just not like, investing in it. It does seem like for the moment we may have a little bit less global cooperation with our you know, like for the moment, it seems like everybody's going to retreat to their own supply this and hold that there. And we'll keep our stuff here in isolationist to some degree. It's a, it's a good point. But I would actually hope that, you know, this trend that we've seen over the past few years with leaders becoming more insular, warning their populations about the threats of outsiders. I would hope that with what has happened during this pandemic, people would understand how interconnected we actually are. And that if we don't work collectively on solutions, we're going to have situations like China being able to keep this a secret with, you know, and this sort of like breakdown in cooperation. And we're going to have a real problem on climate change. You know, there's a lot of other issues that require global cooperation and global solutions that nobody's thinking about because it's not yet an emergency. Well, won't that lie in the global citizens cooperation more than global superpower cooperation? It seems. Um, yes and no. I mean, as individuals, I think we can all work towards green solutions. But in fact, much of the regulation that leads to certain environmental policies, the pressure on corporations to adopt regulations that provide easy ways, easy, easy pathways to consumers and all that. I mean, that lies with government. And uh, we've had we had the Paris Agreement and then um you know, the Trump administration pulled out of it. And yeah. so we actually see that China has been demonstrating a lot of green leadership. So they've actually filled that vacuum in part. And, you know, we all need to be doing our part. And we're not going to, I think the point is like, you can't, you can't go it alone when it comes to climate change. So just like you can't go it alone with this pandemic. And this isn't going to be the first, I mean, this isn't going to be the last time that we get this sort of like global global virus, you know, like the way we travel and everything, unless that fundamentally changes, this will happen again. Is, is, Um, uh, with with these, with the governments you're talking about, and I, I, maybe this is way too broad of a question, but mm -hmm. is this something like, uh, COVID-19, is it causing countries, for example, America, like you said, maybe the leadership and the folks in charge and even, you know, the elites go, wait a minute, you're right. Uh, Yisu's right. She, we are going to lose power at some point. You know, superpowers come and go. It, why, why wouldn't at this time some of these countries, U.S. or China or something, just go? Yeah, we're just going to take over another country. Like, does America want to just make China America? Like, is that like? Are, are we looking at something like that where uh, the the Chinese people would love to live more like we do? So why don't we free them? And then we take over, or are the Chinese folks like, we don't really want America, or Iranian folks, they don't really want Americans in there, but they would just like a few more rights. Is it, is it, 
Do I need to feel like, man, I wish Iran could live like me? Is that is that what I need to t- take away? No, I think it's more, I think what is core, and there's like a very strong debate around this, and there's a lot of cultural cultural relativism. and But I think ultimately around the world, for me, there is no question that authoritarian models of government is humanity's greatest enemy. So for me, I don't think that's a model of governance that anybody should be aspiring to. That's why I've been so concerned about the direction in which the U.S. is trending, because it's trending authoritarian. We have the institutions to withstand it for now. But a lot of this is built on like acceptance of norms, right? Yeah. So I don't think it's a question of liberation. You know, like I know there was all these like misguided sort of attempts to liberate Iraq or, you yeah. know, whatever. Like that's not correct. The sort of U.S. military industrial complex is a big problem. And that's not the kind of leadership that we should be demonstrating abroad. The leadership is one of diplomacy. It's one of modeling good behavior. It's one of encouraging democratic norms um, human rights, right? Promotion of human rights, civil liberties, all of that. That's going to look different country to country. But what is key is that people in those countries should be able to have representative government. They should be able to feed into what decisions their leaders are making. There should be transparency. There should be gender equality. The countries that have gender equality do much better economically, right? So yeah. there's a business case. It, far from ju- there just being a moral case, there's a business case for better governance. And we're failing that. Governments are trending more towards authoritarianism than they are to um, pure democracies. And that's a big problem for us moving ahead. It's just hard for me to understand. Like, for example, it, right now, so when, I, so when I think of Iran, do I need to think it's a bad place? Like, they, they don't treat their people well? Like, would it be better if they had President Bill Gates in Iran? And they no longer had the leadership and, you know. Yeah, I think view it this way. Um, Iran is currently run by a group of most like men, mostly under over the age of 60. Okay, Um, and they a lot of them are clerics, right? Like it's a theocracy. So. Um, that's not a representative government. There's no real democracy there. There are elections, but those are more like selections. It's really sham elections, right? So the way to view Iran is, Iran is like many other dictatorships in which the government does not represent the people. There's not a represent, there's not a, you know, but so I, I just view governments as separate from people. I've known from a young age, I mean, I'm somebody whose parents are Iranian and I identify with that side of my culture, but I was born here in the US, right? I've known from a young age that governments and people are separate things because my two governments, the US government and the Iranian government have been hostile to each other since I was born. Right. right. And that just showed me how, you know, excuse my language, but how BS all of this Bullshit. is. Bullshit. You can say it. Okay. I know if this yeah. is like a kid friendly program, no. but, um, <laughs> but you know, it just, it just showed that to me at an early age. And I think we need to do a better job of distinguishing people from their governments. And I think even more so where it's a state that doesn't have elections, right? Like to some degree you can say, I mean, I don't think Donald Trump represents me, but I do live in a country where we did vote the guy in. Like there is some degree, there's representation. Now that could be flawed, but our government is a representative one. In Iran, that is not even the case. So like the people are even less to blame for who's in power and they're suffering. They're the 
people who suffer the most from their government, you know? So I, I think connecting to people is really important and expressing constructive solidarity with them in the things that they want to change, like, you know, having greater awareness about what, what the challenges are that they, that they face. And one thing I do is I don't talk about Iran or China. I talk about the Iranian state or the Chinese state, the Chinese government, because again, it's different from their people, right? Right. Like, yes, it really is. Yeah, and that that's clear to me here is, I mean, I have plenty of complaints and gripes against our government and stuff like that's why I always have tried to stay out of it. But I really have a dislike for people that seem to celebrate America being bad itself, like the people that, that are full of guilt and want to prove that we really are so bad. I, no, we're not. We've got some real problems, and the government can have lots of problems or be totally trash. That's all possible without America, without us being bad. And that must be true in Iran and China, too. It has to be yeah. true. Well, so. I think I experienced that the most when I lived abroad after um, it was during the George W. Bush administration. And there were people who straight up, you know, some of them viewed me as Iranian, which actually was better for me in that context. But when I was in Europe, you could see that there was this real anti-American the sort of like animus towards mm -hmm. Americans. And I felt it was really unfair, obviously, because I didn't agree with the policies. Um, but, you know, um, there is that risk of conflating people with their governments. And we really, I think we need to hold American people accountable for some of the government, some of the actions that their government takes because it is a representative government. So that's, again, like a bit of a difference with, you know, a state in which a military has taken control or where there's like an authoritarian leader and, and any sort of, um, protests like Iran has had protests pretty regularly and they've all been violently suppressed by their government. Right. So, um, it's the people want to change and it's unfair to blame them for what, you know, what is happening in terms of their state. But for us, yeah, there's definitely this sort of anti-American, you know, bias and that's unfair. There's so many people who want to change. I think one thing that the the Trump election did show the world is that there are so many people who are so fiercely against the proposals that he's pushing forward and his actions. And so they see that America, maybe they think of America as divided, but surely they see that there are Americans who don't agree with this and who are interested in building a sort of, you know, better world. Um, but yeah, it's a good point. I, I think the other thing too, and I don't want to open a whole nother can of worms, but just being in America and then it for my whole life we've been pro Israel, and then it seems like everything that I've ever been told is Iran hates Israel, Israel hates Iran. We have to protect Israel, or do we? What are we doing there? And so it's really vague and weird. And then it gets uh, very spiritual and Christian. Then then you then you actually tap into people's beliefs and faiths and use that against a country. You know what I mean? Like, like, like you actually, like, that's what I'm saying. Like when we started, I was talking about my, my dad, my dad's always been told those uh, Iranians want to kill all, every Jew in Israel. And that's not what the Bible says. So that, that's what I, and that is misinformation. I, I, I believe that. Yeah. I believe that is not true, but it gets in this weird spiritual context of the things that we've saying once again, are propaganda by the actual spiritual leaders of America. Like, cause we're founded on God and it's, it's on our dollar bill and all this stuff. And then, so even on our, our financial system, our, uh, you know, on our hearts and, and the way we express ourselves spiritually, it feels like, uh, we should be scared of Iran. 
not why we want to help them and send our money. You know what I mean? Like, I I know this is a big question and you don't have to go all into it, but it just goes back to that. I've like, you were even saying with uh, China, how they might even have their own internet. I bet that internet makes, uh, makes America look bad. You know, there's propaganda, there's state propaganda on all sides, some of which is getting more sophisticated um, in terms of, you know, how the digital space is used to propagate that. But um, on the point of Israel, one really interesting thing is that, you know, some of the signs, a lot of the signs that you'd see from protests, um, popular protests that were anti-government in nature in Iran had signs like, please don't focus on Palestine. We need help here. Like the idea that the Iranian state goes to, you know, sends money to support Hamas and Hezbollah and so on. And really there's a lot of domestic issues and, you know, there is no, I would say that that's more used for politicization, politicization than anything. I mean, you know, there's also this sort of like a divide in the Middle East between like the Arab world and Iran, you know, there's a lot of different fractures. And I think a lot of the people, a lot of the students and a lot of the kind of like progressive leaning people in the country are just sort of sick and tired of their government sending money abroad to all these like foreign policy aims, very similar to how a lot of Americans are sick of the money that's getting spent on foreign policy aims of our government, right? When we think that that money could be better invested at home. So actually, you know, we're no different. Um, And I, I would think you would actually see that a lot of people in Iran are completely ambivalent on this question of Israel and Palestine. Of course, there's a recognition of, you know, human rights abuses. There's like a recognition of all of that. But I mean, it's not like they have bigger issues that they're concerned about that affect them domestically. So it's similar to here when people are like, why are you spending money on these like far off wars when our education system, it needs love when we don't all have health insurance when, you know, so on and so forth. How are we so, do we have the top military in the world and we can't even address a pandemic i mean these are like wild questions right where has our money been spent as a u.s taxpayer and those are similar questions that the iranian population deals with they're not setting the priorities especially because their leaders are unelected they're not setting the priorities for where where it's being spent right right yeah that's that's what's so scary just as i mean that's what i'm saying like it feels as if you're told a narrative and if you don't believe it then uh, what you you are out there on your own and you don't know and and what does it mean and 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 it feels so far away and that's why one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on is because it it really does feel that way it feels like all these other countries are out there doing their thing and I've been told to mostly be scared of them and that doesn't seem right I feel like they're they're all good people wanting more and so I don't want to infringe on anybody's rights I don't I don't really want uh, like like we were talking earlier I don't want Iran to be America I want it to be individual and have all the amazing things that they can do that's not like America that's what seems really valuable to to this world yeah. but it it is it's hard to understand what we're dealing with because on one aspect I feel like oh no the people of Iran are oppressed then I go wait a minute but I don't want to I don't know think our country should totally uh, be over there and, uh, you know, with our missiles pointed at them, that doesn't seem right either to change, to change it. So I don't know. It, I mean, you deal with this every day. I don't know how you like, do you, do you feel like you getting anywhere? <laughs> I, know that's like, I mean, like, like, do you feel like, man, golly, I just, I've been working, you know, my whole life and yeah. I hadn't gotten far or, or do you feel like you're making some headroom? 
I mean, I, th- I think that the primary thing I'm focused on is justice for victims of human rights abuses. So that's going to focus on legal trials. That's going to focus on getting testimony from them, documenting their abuses, ra- raising that to international organizations, UN bodies, things like that. Right. So in that sense, yes, I think you know, there is progress and there is progress on accountability. And that's been progress over several decades that has built, has slowly built on itself and that there's still a lot more work to be done. But I feel very optimistic because of what I think is the natural progression of things. I think what we see now is that, you know, heads of state are not automatically given immunity for certain acts that would have been inconceivable before. Um, The idea that states should be accountable for you know, acts of torture that they perpetrate before that would be off limits to sue over that. That's not necessarily the case anymore in some countries. Right. So there's definitely a trend towards greater accountability, justice, like this rules based system. So I'm very hopeful personally. I think these are long term plays. You're not going to see instant change. Right. It's a it's change through the justice system takes a long time. Change through legal mechanisms take a long time. So I'm prepared to do that for as long as it takes. And that fight will continue after I'm gone too. Right. So it's going to take, it's going to take a while, but I think on the point of what you were mentioning with, um, just in terms of like, uh, you know, what should we be doing? Right. There's a way to, I I almost feel like sometimes I had, I had an unfair advantage in that the having been born as like what they call, I guess, a third culture kid or something where it, my parents were clearly from from somewhere else, newly arrived, and I could have that benefit early on of seeing how people are people. And that's something that a lot of people t- who are in who have a similar background for me take for granted. Because actually, when you don't come from that background, a lot of things are about othering. It's about like those other people, those people we should be fearful of, and. I, it didn't even occur to me that that could be, you know, the way that people would think because I just, it, it would have been impossible for me to have that perspective having been raised in two completely different cultures. Right. right. Um, and so I, I think the big first step is just awareness. The fact that you all have these kinds of conversations that yeah. there are people in your networks that, you know, tune in and, and get that perspective is so important because um, otherwise we could really believe things that are told to us that, you know, that our governments tell us, that corporate interests tell us, you know, a lot yeah. of people have financial interests and power interests and in othering people, um, whether that's the weapons manufacturers, whether, you know, you just go down the list, right? But right. we're not really different. And I think that's one of the most important takeaways. And I think that's the way that one can spread change is by like really breaking that down because then people start to look for other information sources, other answers and kind of realize like that's not the way the world is actually. Gisa, we really appreciate your time, man. We kept you on here for a while and I just, I'm just fascinated. I mean, you just have so much knowledge and it's just, it is just so interesting to me. I mean, literally, uh, one of the, one of the big things that really does stick out to me is how scared we all are. And, and that keeps us from each other. And 
even like helping each other, much, much less loving each other or hoping for the best for each other. So getting some really good, detailed information uh, about the whole world, honestly, has, has been really valuable. So thank you so much for your time. We really, really do appreciate it. Um, and folks can find you at uh, Gisu Nia, at Gisu Nia on Twitter. And where else can they find you? And any other stuff that you want people yeah, to check out? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm public. I'm on Instagram. Same handle. You can just G-I-S-S-O-U-N-I-A. Find me on all the things. Awesome. Well, good Go luck to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And we hope you can get some of those war criminals in the courts. We yeah. support that. That'd be great. Thank you. Okay. All right. Yeah. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Um, man, I just, I feel like once again, just, <laughs> just so uh, thankful that this podcast that allows us to have just, such smart, vibrant people that know so much. I don't know anything about my world, Matt. Matt, I don't know <laughs> anything. I'm, okay, I'm just going to be re- you, you said you were honest earlier. You know, I'm going to be honest. I did not know Bolivia was in South America. <laughs> <laughs> she talked about Bolivia, and I was looking in Europe for it. And I was like, what the, why is she here? She is so great. She knows all this stuff. I mean, she's her brain is is a hundred billion times more than me. And I just I can't believe I'm so thankful that somebody like her would come on. Like I, I just I mean I know now where Bolivia is obviously, but that it really makes some re- she makes some really good points. Uh, things like I think our American pride it really does. Like I, I really do think. Wait a minute, what if America just took over Iran? Wouldn't it be better? But that's not true. That that it doesn't work that way. It, the, the folks there, the real people on the ground, that are just people like me, that with families and stuff like that, they don't they don't want to be American. They want to be Iranian. And yeah. so, what, what what am I trying to do? Oh, let let me bring to you what you need. Wait a minute, that's not what they. So it's so complicated. You can't just go. You can't just go take over China and all of a sudden it's better. That that, it, that actually wouldn't even work. Yeah, the the thing that you hear, I think a lot is most stuff is justified as well. It's complicated and it's over your head, which right. it may, that may be true, but that doesn't mean you can't. But you also hear anytime you go down some line of thinking of trying to say, but these other people in these other places, you'll get somebody that'll come in and right. say, they'll say, Matt, there is real evil in the world, and you just don't know it. Right? You just don't know what evils, are. and I believe that. I know there's people that saw people's heads right. off for for their political message and all that and do all the stuff. But there's that kind of thing everywhere. I mean, there's, of course that does exist, but there's something they say, I think in storytelling where they call it the golden message. And it's like at the, at the core of of most of our art that's moving to us, where it's basically the message of a lot of stuff is what we're all the same. You know, you feel that as the moral message in lots of art that's inspiring or you feel good about. And it's that thing of, oh, even in India and Bollywood and this and that and this this slum and this other country or whatever, oh, we're all the same. But then you also have that voice of people going, but it's dangerous and there's real evil in the world and you're just so lucky you don't have to know about it. But there are, you know, so that's the thing to balance. And if you mix those two, one's scary. One's hard to see and understand unless depicted really artfully. And then on the other hand, it's just difficult and complicated, and there's a lot of facts that can either be boring or overwhelming. So you could basically see that the bias always lands on not understanding others. Yeah, That's clearly the the incentive is always there. 
to do that. Yeah. So you must work hard against it. And then you still run into these. Well, is that, I mean, I've heard people talk about I ran my whole life. I just kind of tune it out. I know. Just, I was, well, I'm uh, not about to understand it's over it, there, so and it I don't even understand bad. what's going on here. I hope our American troops don't have to get sent over there or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the way that people talk about it. I, I tried to look up that storytelling thing you were talking about too. It, it, unfortunately, I went it, it golden shower. What did you yeah, say? Golden it was? shower is similar. It's it, the other. It's the other main message in yeah. movies. There's go, the golden message. There's the golden rule. And there's I was golden trying to look shower. up golden That's message and it let, it led me down. I, I, yeah. I, it wasn't good. <laughs> that golden shower. Looking, no, I, no, I, I did not expect that. What it turned out to be, I would say, I did not know that's what it was going to be. I thought I was looking for a storytelling thing. So yeah. I, it got weird. It just got weird. I would, don't look that up on the internet. Don't type that in to Google because that ain't where you were trying to go. But anyway, man, my God, I just, I don't know if this podcast is, can get better. I just, the people we've been having on is just, <laughs> it, it just, it intimidates me and it makes me feel like, oh, yeah, 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 wait. I, I just need to get on basic universal basic income and not say much. Let's like, do it. You know I like what I mean? It. Like, yeah, don't, don't, universal don't, basic. Let's just don't roll don't that let me out. influence anybody because I I ain't the I ain't got the brain. I just don't have. Well, it's, we've spent plenty of time talking about the complicated things, and I don't even think it would be worth me trying to explain even further like we normally do here about yeah. the BC Club. So why okay. don't we shut up and let somebody in the BC Club tell you about it? Thank God. We have something like a clubber commercial here. We'll probably. Oh, this is an actual these, clubber. You're saying, yeah. Okay. Instead of instead of you saying, I don't know, join Ooh. the BC Club and give me money. Why don't we just have somebody from inside the BC Club oh, tell yeah. you why they like being in it? That would that's that's so. Let's just yep. try that approach. And we paid them and threatened their life. Let's hear it. Hey, you knuckleheads. <laughs> My name's Mary Beth, and I live in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I joined the BC Club sometime in early 2015. I originally joined because I love the podcast and I really want to support the guys, but little did I know what kind of community I would be joining. I really didn't even realize that I would be joining a community. But once I was added to the Facebook group and I saw how supportive and welcoming everyone was and I started building relationships with these people, that's really what reinforced that I made the right decision and that's what's kept me around for so long. This BC Club community that has been built and has grown over the years has really been a blessing to me. Very good. So Man, we can, so uh, if you would like to join the BC Club, you'd like more information about that, then you go to thebcclub.com and you can check out what that's all about. And it is. It's a community and it's been pretty healthy and we've had a lot of ups and downs in there. It's like a real community and you'll continue to see, I think, that these digital communities that people our interface with will continue to be more yep. and more real and more and more valuable. And so it's kind of this whole world of trying to navigate those things and they have, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a lot of fun. So it's been a big part of our life and it seems like the people in there too. So the fact this all works together, there you go. That's somebody's, it's like a testimonial it makes me a little bit, we like to kind of undersell it and say we're stupid or whatever, but it seems like some of these things are valuable to other people. So I don't want to undersell the BC club, uh, but thank you, Mary Beth. That seems valuable to you. We appreciate it. You got anything else, Toby? No, I'm just in awe. I'm just sitting over here in awe. So I'm, <laughs> I just can't believe what I get to do for a living. Work should not be this awesome. It just should not be this fun. <laughs> it should not be this awesome. I, um, I mean, thank you guys for listening. I appreciate allowing me to get to do what I do. Well, bad news, Toby. You've been furloughed. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 that <That'd> be- <laughs> 
That'd be so funny if you sent me an email. I got a, a letter from Matt. It goes, Matt, uh, Toby, I know we've been friends for a long time. Due to economic situations <laughs> and our furlough. <laughs> we'll bring you back. <laughs> yeah. You're coming back. Don't worry. We'll keep your health care yep. on. But yep. you've been furloughed for now. Oh, boy. I wish. I mean, that's a... That's that's been people don't even understand behind the scenes. Reva's always like, "When are we getting health care? When are we getting two weeks paid up?" Reva just always been saying. She's been saying. How long she's been saying that? My God! And now we got to let her go because of COVID. <laughs> furloughed. Wait, furloughed. Go. Furloughed. I said furloughed. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I told I told Jess. I said, "Hey, listen." Because of COVID, I want you to know we are splitting up. You and I will no longer be married. But it's the COVID. Maybe one day we'll get back to, we, maybe we might get back together. I don't know. But COVID is coming the way of our marriage. Marital furlough. I mean, COVID has to. You can just use it for anything, right? Hey, mm-hmm. listen. I know. I, I know. I suppose. I mean, two years from now, I'm, I'm going to be able to say, "Hey, listen. I know we're supposed to go out tonight. Remember COVID? I just not. I don't think I can hang out with. I'm not going to be able to do your podcast. I'm not going to be able to." You know, do what you are asking me to do. It's the ultimate get out card. Oh boy, golly! It'd be, in fact, it's the ultimate. If you, uh, if what if uh, it does, you can get it again. You could per- yep. perpetually say you have COVID to get out of everything you don't want to do for the rest of your life. You don't say you have it; just that you never, you've been, you might have Ugh. been exposed. Is all you have to say. You know, how you might can get it again. Ugh. I better not come to your party. So I don't think so, but yeah. I may have been exposed. So what do you want me to bring? I, oh, I'm so, I was so wanted to be at your baby shower. I so <laughs> wanted to be there. I'm so sorry. COVID. Fucking COVID. I remember your face in the mirror. I remember the look in your eyes. The subtlety of your secrets and whispers. Telling me that I'm something I'm not. The w-